0: turn to to God's word this morning and we read last week from Isaiah 64 so we're going to read this week from another, another text that's often used with the advent in mind which is from Isaiah 40. These words spoken to Jerusalem in the years after the destruction of the city as they looked for the exiles returning. Let us hear God's word. Comfort Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places as a plain. For the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out! And I say, What shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, as we come in this season of Advent, this season of waiting, so we wait on you. We ask this morning by your Holy Spirit that you would clear from us all the obstacles, the distractions, sometimes even the obsessions that divert us from you. And in this time, as we meditate on this ancient word, we pray that by your Spirit it would be real to us in Jesus' name. comfort. It's a lovely word, isn't it? Comfort and joy. Be comforted. It's something that we are always looking out for, our comforts. We, hardly a day goes by where we don't feel that there's something that we should do just to, to be good to ourselves. We talk about creature comforts, we talk about comfort eating. Does anyone else do that? Yeah, comfort foods. Or that image of the favorite slippers, um, as we put on our our, our relaxing clothes and we sit in the couch in front of the telly and things just feel better at that point. Nothing's actually changed. We just feel better because we are for that moment distracting ourselves. Or someone brings comfort to someone else And again, what do they do? They spend some time distracting them from the pain of whatever it is that's gone wrong. A hug, a card, a nice word. But there is a problem with comfort. Comfort isn't a solution, it's a distraction. It, for a time, makes us feel a little bit better, takes us away from the thing that's there. And in fact, if we think about it, quite often when we talk about comforting words, we mean words that are, well, (laughs) at best, questionable It'll be better tomorrow. Are you sure? Things will get better. It, it, it'll be, you know, it'll feel better. You'll, you'll get over it. You'll survive. All sorts of words that we use that are sometimes comforting, but they're cliched. They don't really bear up to any sort of examination other than to say, well, right now feel a little better. Dubious at best. But Isaiah comes with these words from Scripture. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, says your God. And what I want to examine this morning is the sense that here is a comfort which doesn't tell lies. Which doesn't distract from the pain and the problem, but comes precisely to deal with it. Because this chapter starts with these gentle words of comfort, goes on to make quite clear that something is about to happen. Someone is about to come, and it's big. There's a scene in Jurassic Park, one of these wonderfully short scenes where on the dashboard of the car, there is a cup of water. You don't see anything. All you see is the shudder of the water moving, and then the thud. Louder and louder. Something is coming. That's the effect that we get in chapter 40. A voice is coming. You don't see it, just like the dinosaur is never seen. The voice simply comes. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Then the vision gets clearer. The valleys are raised up. The mountains are brought down. The rough ground is leveled. Something is coming and this thing is big. If you were coming this morning, Thinking on the run up to Christmas, what you needed was something quiet, something comforting. This is like turning up on Christmas morning and discovering that the earth breaking equipment is round the house, round the church. Everything is about to change the mountains, the hills. Understand this there is a problem with Christmas. And the problem with Christmas is that we have got so used to the little baby. The harmless shepherds, always immaculate actually from their night in the fields. Mary, who's just given birth but has got the makeup on perfectly. And Joseph sitting smugly by. It's all so comforting, away in a manger, this baby doesn't even cry to disturb your sleep. Nothing scary here, nothing demanding, nothing changing, just a comfort. And what we forget is that the one that they longed for, the one that they waited for, the one that they expected in that Advent hope wasn't expected to come with that type of saccharine comfort at all. If you search the Old Testament prophecies, you will find a few verses that point to the nativity scene that you remember there. The virgin shall be with child, and his name shall be Emmanuel. We know the words. Out of Bethlehem there shall come this light that will be a light to the Gentiles. But actually, the majority of Old Testament prophecy isn't telling you stories of what will happen at Bethlehem, it's speaking of a coming. A coming of the Lord, a day of the Lord, a day of reckoning, God finally coming to put the world to right, and it's terrifying, for he comes to bring justice to the earth. He comes to bring an accounting for what is wrong. He comes to bring a solution, but it's a solution that will change everything. It's one of the reasons I like us to pause in Advent before we get to Christmas and recapture what it was that they were looking for. One of the Advent songs that we sometimes sing is, "'Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending.'" Now, here's the interesting thing about this song. That we sing this, it's Wesley's great hymn at Advent. I don't know whether it's been sung here over the years at DL St. Andrews, but certainly I've loved this song. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, thousands of saints attending, the Alleluia's ringing, every eye shall see him, deeply wailing, deeply wailing. And not much wonder at the end of that Advent song, someone, doesn't, someone says, Can we not just sing away in a manger? <laughs> something comforting, something harmless. The thing is, Isaiah isn't really into just simple words that make us feel better. He's into unveiling the truth of what's actually going on. Take these words from verse 6 of the chapter we read. A voice says, cry out, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. Now think about what Isaiah has just said here. This has started off with, tell them comforting words, speak gently. And he says, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. That confronts us with two facts. One, we're like grass. We are mortal. We are going to die. Well, that's not very comforting. And secondly... Our faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. It's fleeting. We think we're good people. We think we're godly people, but actually try to do it right for two seconds and we discover we're not. Only God is eternal. Only God is faithful. That's what Isaiah is confronting us with. And in fact, if you were to read the 39 chapters that come before, you would find that it it was even more than that. You see, Isaiah Confronts the human predicament exactly as it is. In those 39 chapters, he addresses God's people and he says, You are guilty of every type of sin imaginable oppression of the poor, greed, prejudice, social injustice, all those sins that are about the structures of society. And he goes on to say, also sexual impurity, adultery, neglect of your family. It's really quite interesting when the Bible comes to town. it it deals with the whole panoply of our failures. You know, one of the things in our our, our politicized societies at the moment is that folk on the left will stress all the the social injustices that there are in our world, but sometimes they won't say too much about the personal morality side. And then folk on the more conservative side will stress all the, the things that we do that are all about sexual morality and the family and everything else, but they'll ignore social injustice. You get that polarization in society. The Bible will have none of it. It comes and says, if you're, if you're, it doesn't matter whether you're conservative or, or liberal, left or right, be aware of the brokenness of everything around us. God's judgment comes upon all of us. There are consequences for our sin. And that is exactly what happens in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters point to God's judgment on Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the place. When God turns up, sin is dealt with. It's one of the reasons that as the people in Jesus' day yearned for a Messiah, they were aware that a Messiah was a double-edged sword. Because if God turned up, then yes, God would deal with the oppression and God would deal with the Romans and God would deal with the things that were wrong and the poverty and the the injustice but he'd also deal with me that's why when John comes his first word is repent that's what it means to get ready for this that's why the Pharisees in their own way were trying to get everyone to keep the law in every part of its minutiae because you better be ready if God comes The image in this chapter of Isaiah, of a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make a straight path in the desert. The mountains and the hills raised down and the the valleys raised up and the glory of the Lord appearing. The image that we've got here is of a king coming. You know we can think about this in in modern terms when a VIP arrives the motorcades scream in but before that the police outriders come and close all the roads down don't they so there's a straight way for the king to come. In ancient times they might build a new road if the emperor was going to come to town but here is a much more dramatic vision. Every obstacle is torn down. Not just that Mm. but It's not just that a road is built through the valley, the valley is raised up. It's not just that a road is built over the mountains, the mountain is pulled down. This king comes and dramatically transforms the whole of the world. What it's saying is this, when God turns up the whole place will be under new management. What has been impassable will become passable, what has become impossible will become impossible will become possible This isn't just a king coming. This is the king coming so that all the obstacles will be removed. A king is coming. New management for the earth. Because our management has been incompetent. Our leadership has been incompetent. And so God is coming. There's actually a deep yearning in the human heart for that, for the king to come, for someone to come and bring a solution. We find it in our fables and our stories, don't we? Arthurian legends, or Aslan returning in Narnia, or the return of the king in the Tolkien novels. But what the Bible says is this yearning within us isn't just a fairy tale. It's something that we know needs to happen. Think about it this way. Do you watch nature programs? Some folk do. David Attenborough? You know, one of the things about nature though is this, it's pretty cruel. Most of these things, when they show us not fluffy bunnies, but they show us nature as it really is, that truth again, it's not comforting, is it? What do we find in nature? The strong eat the weak. The predator kills the prey. The cat brings the bird in, or the mouse in, if you've got a pet. And you go, oh, yuck, but actually that bird bird has already killed how many worms to get there that's natural. And yet if people behave like that, the strong eat the weak, the powerful oppress the poor, then we feel it's wrong, don't we? We feel it's not natural. And yet when we look at nature, it is natural. You see the tension? Something within us says this isn't right to behave like this. That's why we tell the cat off when it brings in the mouse. But yet it is natural. There's a tension at the heart of it. We have a deep feeling within us that the strong should protect the vulnerable, that the strong should protect the weak, that justice demands fairness for everybody, that justice demands peace for everything. And yet, nature seems to say something else. The United States Constitution has those famous words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, we would want to add women, are created equal. But have you ever thought, as you've heard those words, that there's nothing self evident about that at all? That all are created equal? Nature doesn't hold it that way. The strong eat the weak. There is not equality within nature. So, what is it? Is this feeling that we have in our hearts of justice unnatural? Are we wrong? Is this crazy? Or is nature somehow disordered? Which does it seem to be? Where does this feeling of justice come from? It cannot come from nature unless there is something that is super nature beyond it, something outside, something bigger than nature, something that guarantees the justice that looks after the vulnerable, something that when we feel in our hearts that that is what should be, is echoing some deeper truth. Otherwise, it is just madness, unnatural. And the Bible tells us that that longing of the human heart for justice comes because there is a king outside the world, beyond nature. There is one who is just. There is one who comes with power. That's why human rights actually don't point to ethics without God. They point to there being a God. They don't make any sense unless there is a God. Where do these rights come from? They don't come from nature. But the human heart longs for justice. It longs for the return of the king, for the kingdom to come. That is why every part of politics, every part of society that starts trying to build a juster world is somehow reaching out for that which comes in God. The King is coming, says the Advent message. That desire, that yearning for justice, for an end to oppression, for the weak to be liberated that is within our hearts is real. It is not a fake hope, for it comes in our King. You see, this is why the Bible tells the truth. And that's where the comfort comes from. We don't have to avoid it, we are mortal. Our world is broken. Our lives, our families, our politics—all of this we can face, but not with a despair that says, therefore, we have to we have to abandon all hope, and not with a sort of comforting distraction that pretends everything is fine. Rather, we come looking for something that makes sense of everything. There is a king. There is a manager. There is one who comes to guarantee and to make all things right. And all that we feel hints towards that. Comfort. Comfort, my people. Of course, the Advent message isn't just that judgment is coming, because that wouldn't be very comforting in itself. It is also that hope is coming speak tenderly to Jerusalem. This fearsome warrior who comes to make all things right, to rip all things down, to bring in a new judgment and a new natural order, comes also as one who says sin has been dealt with. Punishment has been dealt with. He comes gently. He comes, says the scripture. Oops, we're way ahead of ourselves says the scripture, he, he comes gently. Advent is necessary for us to understand Christmas, not just because of the Old Testament prophecies looking to the scene at Bethlehem, but when we understand that God was expected to come in anger and wrath and judgment, then the miracle of the God that comes in vulnerability And gentleness and love, who guarantees all that the promise brings, but also comes with our salvation, suddenly becomes truly wonderful. The healing that comes, for God comes in love. This passage ends with saying that He comes like a shepherd. My people, are to be comforted, we are his. My people have to hear my voice for I come to gather them up, I come to love them. He tends his flock like a shepherd, he gathers the lambs in his arms, he carries them close to his heart. For the message that comes from the Old Testament and is found fully in the coming of Jesus, is that the judge and the king of the world is also one of love, who gives himself, who comes as one of the vulnerable. And therefore, we look to the Christmas message with joy. And so, Christmas isn't escapism, where we put on a bit of slade to make us feel better for 24 hours, or maybe that makes you feel worse, I don't know. It's to deal with the reality Of the brokenness of the world of the brokenness of our lives and yet to know that there is justice and there is hope and there is salvation in the christ that comes and dies for us that we might know forgiveness and healing and hope amen